Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. The Supreme Court in 1973 decided that Texan laws criminalizing abortion unless the mother's life was at stake violated the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, including the right to privacy. The court further held that any laws which restrict a woman's right to have an abortion in the first trimester were to be challenged under strict scrutiny. Earlier this year, in 2016, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments with respect to the current Texan regulations applicable to abortion providers in Whole Women's Health versus Hellestad. While the regulations are purportedly to protect women as patients of clinics, no similar regulations were thought fit by the Texan legislature for procedures with much higher rates of complications, such as liposuctions and colonoscopies, for instance, nor even for dilation and curatage procedures after a miscarriage, which are medically equivalent procedures to abortions. Texas is not alone in enacting these insidious laws with 44 states in the District of Columbia subjecting abortion providers to restrictions not imposed on other medical professionals and with 288 laws restricting abortion across the country since 2010. These targeted regulations of abortion providers, or TRAPs, have led to mass closure of clinics as violence and threats have dramatically increased to clinics still operating. With more and more restrictions on abortion and a greater threat of violence, women have been turning to self-induced methods of abortion at home. However, while abortion is a constitutionally protected right, numerous states have criminalised women for self-inducing their own abortions, and women are currently imprisoned throughout the country for doing nothing more than undertaking a constitutionally protected activity. With me today to discuss these issues and more, I have Jill E. Adams and Melissa Mikesell from the Centre for Reproductive Rights and Justice at Berkeley Law, which seeks to realise reproductive rights and advance reproductive justice by influencing legal and social science discourse and research and by bolstering law, policy and advocacy efforts. Jill Adams is the Centre's founding executive director and Melissa Mikesell is the Centre's supervising attorney and the director of its self-induced abortion legal team. Hi, Jill and Melissa. Thank you for being on Gravity today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So the Centre has a legal team, a database of cases and policy articles and convenes workshops and meetings for collaboration of scholars, lawyers and advocates on policy initiatives. May you please elaborate on the main policy initiatives that the Centre is currently concentrating on? Happily. So the the Center on Reproductive Rights and Justice, also known by the acronym COURAGE, is a think tank that propels lasting law and policy solutions by connecting people and ideas across the academic advocate divide. We're a connector in many ways as we straddle various realms, academia and advocacy, as I mentioned, as well as law and social sciences, reproductive rights, and reproductive justice sectors of the movement. On a mission to realize reproductive rights and advance reproductive justice by furthering scholarship, bolstering advocacy efforts, and influencing legal and social science discourse through innovative research, teaching, and convening. And as you mentioned, Alexander, last year we launched three long-term strategic initiatives in order to maximize our potential impact by harnessing Courage's unique knowledge, skills, and connections to target particularly complex, unpopular, and intractable issues ripe for fresh thinking. We are concentrating on public perceptions of 
and public supports for poor and low-income people's reproductive decisions and experiences. Here's the, here's the situation, Alexandra. Growing numbers of pe poor people in the United States still do not have the public support they need to decide freely whether to have a child and to parent the children they have with even a modicum of security or dignity. Medicaid provides uh, health coverage to 13.3 million women of reproductive age, but the Hyde Amendment, which is an appropriations rider passed by Congress annually since 1976, bans federal Medicaid funds from covering abortions except in a few select cases, rape, incest, and, and life-threatening circumstances. The Supreme Court upheld the Hyde Amendment in a split decision called Harris versus McRae in which the narrow majority found that the government does not have an obligation to quote-unquote subsidize abortions and that the difficulties that indigent women encounter in seeking abortions aren't caused by the government but rather by their own poverty. So a Medicaid recipient in any one of the 33 states that does not provide state funding for abortion must cobble together the funds, typically about $500 in the first trimester, to pay for either the medication or the procedure out of pocket. Now, that is a huge sum of money to someone who is poor enough to qualify for Medicaid. This often forces her to forego paying for rent, utilities, food, or delays the abortion until a later stage of pregnancy when the costs and, stick and, and risks, albeit still slight, increase. And the recent spate of legal restrictions on abortion access and provision have forced dozens of clinics to close and prohibited them from caring for women past a certain stage in pregnancy. Since 2010, 288 of these, uh, these bills have become laws. So if this pregnant Medicaid recipient cannot come up with the money or cannot reach a clinic that can perform the abortion she needs, she may try to induce an abortion herself using medication or other measures. Some pregnant people prefer to self-administer medication abortion because it's in alignment with their belief system regarding health because they're members of communities that have been used or abused by the mainstream medical and pharmaceutical systems in the U.S. or because cultural confusion and language barriers make it difficult, if not impossible, for them to navigate complicated, unfamiliar systems like health insurance or because they come from any number of countries where self-determined health care, including self-administered abortion, uh, medication abortion, is the norm. So if by preference or force of circumstance, this pregnant Medicaid recipient takes matters into her own hands, she risks arrest and imprisonment under laws that limit abortion provision to licensed healthcare workers and criminalize self-induction under a litany of charges, ranging from fetal homicide to delivery of a controlled substance to a minor to improper disposal of human remains to practicing medicine without a license. So what if the pregnant person either wants to have a child or runs out of time or alternatives, as do we know a quarter of Medicaid recipients who want to end their pregnancies but cannot due to legal restrictions and practical barriers. Well, within two years of that child's birth, she is three times more likely than a similarly financially situated person who obtained abortion care to be living below the poverty line. And if she lives in any one of the 16 states, including our state of California, that has a welfare family cap, the child she bears will be rendered ineligible for cash aid. So she must then try to take care of more people with fewer resources to go around, essentially rendering the family poorer and more vulnerable to various forms of insecurity and instability. Basically, a poor pregnant person in the U.S. today is damned if they have an abortion and damned if they don't. And so our center 
is trying to do something about that through these three strategic initiatives. The first aims to overturn that 1980 Supreme Court case, Harris versus McRae. That's the one that upheld the Hyde Amendment. To that end, we, are, we aim to generate scholarship and theories, transform constitutional analysis and interpretation, and shift the legal discourse with the eventual goal, goal of overturning the case and restoring the abortion right to a meaningful reality for poor and low-income people. Our second strategic initiative aims to abolish welfare family caps. We know that a third of the states that have enacted family caps under welfare reform have since repealed them, but little is known within the reproductive health rights and justice movement about who or what led to these successes. So we aim to gather insights from the eight states that have repealed their welfare family caps, continue, continue to conduct multidisciplinary research to uncover critical data, disseminate findings, and produce law and social science scholarship. And also, we plan to bring together economic and reproductive justice advocates to collaborate and reinforce repeal efforts in the 16 states where they remain. Finally, our third strategic initiative aims to halt the criminalization of abortion self-induction. Courage convenes the Self-Induced Abortion Legal Team, or the SIA Legal Team, a consortium, a consortium of legal organizations using law and policy tools to ensure that all people throughout the U.S. can end their own pregnancies outside the formal healthcare system with dignity and safe from the threat of arrest for themselves or anyone who assists them. The team, by the way, is made up of RJ advocates and lawyers from Courage, uh, which acts as a convener of the coalition, and uh, other team members, which includes Law Students for Reproductive Justice, Legal Voice, Gender Justice, National Advocates for Pregnant Women, Southwest Women's Law Center, and Reproductive Health Technologies Project. Um, we're, we're coordinating legal research on five campuses and at nine organizations throughout the country. We're plotting the legal landscape of self-administered medication abortion without medical supervision. And I, I think Melissa will probably dive into this more, more deeply in a moment, but um, in essence, uh, with that strategic initiative, we are looking into the potential legal implications for those who sell, buy, dispense, ingest, and relay information about medications that induce abortion. Beyond investigating the current state of the laws, uh, the C legal team is exploring possibilities for long-term policy changes, short-term protections and defenses, and possible mechanisms for information relay and referrals. Let's begin by addressing the strategic initiative that you mentioned first overturning Harris versus McRae, which upheld the Hyde Amendment denying Medicaid coverage for abortions. This amendment is also incorporated into the Affordable Care Act. In a vociferous dissent, Justice Brennan found that the government's decision to cover all pregnancy-related care but not abortion was discriminatory and just as effective in influencing behaviour as criminal sanction. It seems Hyde has established a two-tiered system of reproductive rights in this country between women who have the means and capacity to effectuate their rights and women who don't, rendering the constitutional right moot. Is there a need for a positive approach to rights discourse and enforcement so that a right is enforced by enforcing someone's capacity to effectuate that right? I agree with your assessment of the Harris versus McRae case, and that was one of four very vociferous, very scathing dissents. That was such a close opinion, a 5-4 opinion, um, in which the five-justice majority essentially condoned a two-tiered system that maintains the abortion right for affluent women and erases it for poor women. Um, 
to your question, yes, we do need positive rights, but even under the sort of negative rights framework that we under which we've been operating, that case was still wrongfully decided, and we are still um, suffering from all of the ripple effects of that case. So the, the McRae case opened the door for the loosening of the judicial standard of review applied to abortion restrictions, making it much easier for them to be deemed valid. And that's long before the 1992 case of Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which is the one uh, that is often credited with the creation of the undue burden standard and the ratcheting down of um, judicial scrutiny. Um, it's really because of the court's quick retreat in McRae from its own precedent in Roe only seven years earlier that the debate around abortion rights has lingered for so long. Um, and in short, it's largely because of McRae that Roe is no longer a reality for so many people in this country and frankly hasn't been for a long time. Um, another problem is that the McRae court ignored precedent by upholding restriction that didn't contain an, uh, an exception to protect pregnant women's health, even though Roe said that the government's interest in fetal life never outweighed its interest in maternal health. Um, the court, in that, again, in, in McRae, abandoned several other of its time-honored principles. It violated government neutrality by letting Congress cover childbirth while denying abortion coverage, and that was a focus of many of the dissenters. It enabled government coercion by allowing politicians to try to influence a woman's decision whether to have an abortion, which is what you were pointing out. Um, it also permitted Congress to place unconstitutional conditions on the exercise of a fundamental right by providing pregnancy-related care to women only if they effectively relinquish their constitutional right to have an abortion. In addition, the court failed to enforce human rights, uh, which have, you know, certainly um, developed significantly since that 1980 uh, case. We would argue that the court failed to enforce the human rights of life, health, dignity, um, and equality. It also failed to consider equal protection theories. Um, including whether women who seek abortions are a protected class because they have been subjected to a history of invidious discrimination, uh, because the government has certainly shown animus toward them, um, and finally because race, gender, and class intertwine so that the, the Hyde Amendment has a disproportionate impact on um, the most marginalized populations among us. So. We believe that um, there, we, this case must be revisited. And it's going to take some time um, for us to develop some of these theories, particularly those under the Equal Protection Clause. Um, but but that's, that's part of what our work at Courage is to do. You know, over the course of the next couple of decades is to work hand-in-hand with scholars to help to um, develop novel legal theories under which this case can eventually be revisited and, uh, and overturned. Let's hope it's overturned soon. Unfortunately, we seem to be moving further to entrench the two-tiered system with traps. 
or targeted regulations of abortion providers, making it more difficult for clinics to operate, limiting clinics, and therefore making it more difficult for women to access clinics. Affluent women who can travel long distances, afford the procedure and possibly needed accommodation are not as impacted by these traps as indigent women. While the current case being decided by the Supreme Court concerns Texan regulations, 59% of women live in a state that has enacted traps in this country. Texas claims it has enacted these regulations out of concern for women's health, but tellingly, it has not submitted one instance in which women's health has been harmed because of a lack of these regulations. For instance, Texas could not point to one woman that was not admitted to a hospital when her abortion provider did not have admitting privileges, which Texas claims is necessary so that women are not denied admittance to hospitals from clinics. Your center submitted amicus briefs arguing against the constitutionality of the Texan traps. May you please elaborate more on the case in your amicus briefs? Sure, we'd be happy to. And just to pause and say you're absolutely right that this it is a guise and a thinly failed a thinly veiled one at that that these trap laws protect uh, people's health. There were 45 amicus briefs filed in support of Whole Women's Health. It's an impressive array of diverse perspectives and rationales for striking down HB2 and eliminating trap laws altogether. As you suggest, Alexandra, Texas may be the Lone Star State, but it is not the lone state operating under oppressive trap laws that dictate medically unnecessary, cumbersome facilities requirements that are really designed to make abortion provision ever more expensive and eventually impossible. Trap laws regulate things like the width of hallways, the number of parking spaces and the type of ventilation systems clinics have, none of which have any effect whatsoever on what is already an exceptionally safe and effective procedure. Trap laws also include hospital admitting privileges for the physicians and ambulatory surgical center requirements, which are at the heart of the whole woman's uh, health case. So Courage is one of 13 organizations that are Amici in a brief in this case authored by National Advocates for Pregnant Women. The, br- the brief relies on a case called McCormick versus Indiana to argue that states cannot pass measures that limit access to abortion in the name of protecting or enhancing women's health when in fact the laws worsen health, degrade their humanity, Um, make difficult their lives and threaten to limit their liberty in the most extreme ways through arrest, investigation, prosecution, and imprisonment. And a little bit of background on uh, the case at the heart of that brief, Jenny Lynn McCormick was a mother of three who used abortion pills to end a pregnancy and faced up to five years in prison for self-induced abortion. Uh, An Idaho judge eventually dismissed the charges for lack of evidence. Then Jenny Lynn brought a class action lawsuit in federal court. The Ninth Circuit struck down the criminal self-induced abortion statute under which she'd been charged, as well as a 20-week ban on abortion provision, a requirement for second trimester abortions to be performed in a hospital, and other trap regulations. The Ninth Circuit said that these Idaho laws essentially failed the undue burden test. Uh, As you mentioned, um, our center had involvement in uh, several of the 45 amicus briefs. Our faculty director and the interim dean of Berkeley Law, Melissa Murray, 
co-authored a separate amicus brief which argues two main points. First, it argues that HB2 infringes on the autonomy, dignity, and equal citizenship of all women, especially those seeking to exercise their right to abortion. And that first section of the brief draws support from Casey versus Planned Parenthood's rejection of conceptions about women's place in society and on the Supreme Court's respect for intimate personal decisions in recent LGBTQ rights decisions. Second, the brief argues that HB2's regulations impose both material and dignitary burdens on women's right to abortion. These extra hurdles are especially burdensome for low-income women having underlying paternalistic motives and force women to become what the brief refers to as reproductive refugees in neighboring states. And this goes, both briefs touch upon that central notion that you mentioned, Alexandra, that any, any and all restrictions on access to abortion have disproportionate effects on certain groups, and in particular, um, people who are struggling to make ends meet, people who live in rural areas, minors, immigrants, and disproportionately people of color. Right. For instance, one of the regulations was if you were going to take a pill instead of taking one at the clinic and then going home and taking the second one at home, uh, there's no medical reason to stay at, at the clinic and Texas couldn't come up with a good argument uh, as to why they had that provision. But in practice, what it would do is, is a woman would have to not only travel about 200 miles to a clinic, but she would have to then spend the night in a hotel. And so only more affluent women would be able to, you know, to take the pill. And if they can't take the pill, they might wait, and then they would have to have the procedure, which even though it's very limited medical risk, it would still be better for a woman to take a pill than to undergo a procedure. So actually the regulations simply trying to prevent women from having abortions, the regulations do not apply to DNCs after miscarriage, but medically I believe it's exactly the same procedure. Right, right. And as you, I mean, as you pointed out, you know, well, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the cost, um, the abortion costs borne by people living in poverty are much higher than one might think. So, uh, you know, if on top of the $500 for either surgical or medication, if somebody has to go to a clinic and go perhaps twice, you tack on to that, that price, the, the, the price of bus tickets or gas, which could be really high um, for any one of the 10,000 women who will live more than 150 miles from the nearest abortion provider under HB2. Plus, uh, you know, these women have to come up with money for a place to stay overnight, uh, for childcare for the kids they've left behind, and that's all assuming they can afford the lost wages for the, you know, days away from work. So all told, securing an abortion can cost some families half a month's pay. And then if, you know, if we're talking about a person who is an undocumented immigrant, perhaps living in the Rio Grande Valley, there's no use in even trying to come up with all of that because they won't be able to get past the border control checkpoints. So when we think about, you know, what's at stake in this case, what's going to happen to these women um, in Texas if HB2 is allowed to take effect and 75% of the clinics close, well, we won't see 75% fewer abortions or 75% more births. Uh, we know from uh, several studies, several social science studies, including the Turnaway study from Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health at 
UC San Francisco, we know that about a quarter of the women who need abortion will end up carrying them to term. And as I mentioned earlier, we know that that will exacerbate poverty for themselves and their families. Um, and we also know that resourceful women and their loved ones will find ways to end pregnancies outside the formal medical system. Global data suggests that the abortion rate is fairly constant from country to country, irrespective of legality. Laws do not significantly lower the number of pregnancies that end in abortion. They just relocate them from the, they relocate the site of abortion care from the hospital to the home. And Justice Breyer correctly pointed out during oral arguments in the whole women's health case that excessive restrictions on abortion provision that decrease clinic access also increase the necessity for self-administered abortion care. Um, the Texas Policy Evaluation Project, another study, uh, cited many times in both the plaintiff's briefs and the amicus, amici briefs in the whole women's health case, the TexPEP report concluded that as many as 100,000 women in Texas have already attempted to end their own pregnancies outside the formal medical system. And while we don't yet have data on how common home abortion is nationwide, further studies are underway. In early March, there was a New York Times article that used Google Analytics to look at internet searches for home abortion and compare two maps of the U.S., one where abortion laws are the strictest and the other where searches for self-induced abortion are the highest. And while, you know, this doesn't conclusively prove a correlation between abortion restrictions and self-induced abortion, the similarities between the two maps are striking. Right. I mean, if, if you need an abortion and you would have to travel 200 miles and, and pay a sum of money that you don't have, you're more likely to try and figure out how to do it at home because there are remedies that would aid with that. And also, if the law just doesn't allow you to have an abortion, even though it's a constitutionally protected right, you would also want to have it at home now. Which brings me to Indiana, because Indiana is about to pass an even more egregious law against women's constitutional right to have an abortion, uh, House Bill 1337. In this bill, it's pretty much a complete prohibition of abortion, even including when the fetus has an abnormality and even an abnormality where the fetus will no doubt die uh, and end against the dignity of the woman, she would have to pay for the cremation and or burial of the fetus. I mean, that is just a nearly psychological torture. Now, in this very state, Pervy Patel is currently serving a 20-year sentence for self-inducing her own abortion. You have submitted amicus briefs on Ms. Patel's behalf and warned of the consequences of criminalizing self-induced abortion which presumably may only increase with more restrictions on access to abortion clinics. So may you please tell us a bit more about Ms. Patel's particular case and the criminalization of self-induced abortion in the country? Yeah, so uh, the attorneys who represent Ms. Patel and other women like her who are charged with crimes in connection with self-induced abortions report that trials often feel like wish hunts with prosecutors or judges or doctors and others that are involved with bringing people into the legal system um, getting very creative in their interpretation of the law, extending laws that were never meant to cover self-induced abortion, uh, twisting the law um, to fit to particular circumstances and, and to extend them to women who end their own pregnancies, um, as well as the people who may support them or help them along the way. Uh, so we are aware of 17 arrests or convictions in connection with self-induced abortion. So Praveen Patel is 
is by no means alone uh, in, in the types of, of um, criminal uh, efforts to criminalize self-induced abortion. Uh, while we believe abortion should never be criminalized, it's clear prosecutors and judges are currently on a path toward increasing criminalization. Um, and that's why uh, we uh, formed the Self-Induced Abortion Legal Team, um, which we can talk about uh, in, in a moment. Um, but just to, um, to sort of loop back to your um, question about uh, legislatures, um, definitely Indiana is getting, you know, we're, we're seeing creative prosecutors, but we're also seeing very creative legislators. So Indiana, Florida, Georgia, Oklahoma have all proposed legislation within the last few months that might further criminalize uh, methods of abortion that are induced at home. Um, we sometimes refer to that as self-induced abortion, where uh, the, the woman might take uh, herbal remedies, might take the very same medications that are available in abortion clinics, but that are ordered online from a pet pharmacy or from um, a, a, a clinic or a, a pharmacy based in another country, or might, if, if one is in the Rio Grande Valley, might walk across the border into Mexico to, to um, receive the medication over the counter, um, because in, in many parts of the world, uh, the medication that is, medications that are used to induce abortion are available over the counter. Um, and so, um, you know, advocates in Georgia, for example, have reported the legislature was considering efforts to further criminalize self-induced methods of abortion. Um, in Oklahoma, another bill was in, introduced to essentially make abortion tantamount to murder in Oklahoma, um, which could be applied to people who end their own pregnancies. And as you mentioned, in Indiana and, and Florida and others, um, you know, significantly um, significantly hostile bills against um, women who end their own pregnancy. Um, so while some of these bills have not gained traction in this legislative session, um, we have every reason to believe bills will continue to pop up in states that are hostile to abortion and that we will continue to see efforts to uh, further um, you know, interfere with a woman's right to abortion. Now, what could be their argument that this is constitutional? Because as far as I'm aware, the right to have an abortion is constitutionally protected. So if it's a protected activity that you do at home, how can this be criminalized? They're, criminalized, they're effectively criminalizing a constitutional right. Yes, we, we wholeheartedly, we're, we're nodding enthusiastically because... That's that's right. We know that self-induced abortion is is becoming the only option for increasing numbers of people. And if you basically you cut off that method, you cut off the right. Period. And it is it boggles the mind as you pointed out that Purvi Patel is serving 20 years in prison right now for taking exactly the same drug that she could have received from a medical healthcare professional that did the same thing within her body and had the same result that the same pill would have had if given to her by somebody wearing a white coat and she is locked up for 20 years. It's unthinkable. Um, our, the, the, the CIA legal team is working on multiple fronts to try to change and improve conditions for people in uh, Purvi's circumstances. Um, we, we know that we have to operate on multiple fronts in order to change this as 
quickly as we possibly can. So we, we want to work toward improving information relay so that people who do want to self-administer abortion pills have access to reliable, accurate information that can help them do so in the safest and most effective way possible. We, we are aiming to halt the criminalization so that we put a stop to these overzealous lawmakers, prosecutors, and judges. Um, we, we need to uh, work hand-in-hand -hand with scholars, again, to help us develop some novel de defensive uh, theories and, and, uh, and also start to proffer some more positive um, frameworks for these rights. We were interested in working with attorneys and, and defense attorneys in particular across the country to build up a network of at-the-ready lawyers who can come to the aid of people who are arrested. Um, we're also interested in working with community health workers, doulas, midwives, um, you know, community organizers on the ground throughout the country who are working every day with the populations, you know, most affected and who might be interested in building um, safe and reliable self-help or community-based distribution mechanisms for these, uh, these drugs. And finally, we want to do our part to shift the culture um, to be more open and, and, and positive toward safe home abortion within the legal community. We know from our colleagues who are communications experts that we have a long way to go in this country around public education regarding safe home abortion because few people know that, it's, um, that it, is, it is happening, um, that it is happening uh, privately, safely, and effectively, so we don't see it and we don't know about it, but it is um, somewhat commonplace. And, you know, people often jump to the, the self-induced abortion of the days of yore, pre-Roe versus Wade, the gory, you know, coat hanger abortions. And, and so they have this, core, this um, connotation of being unsafe and dangerous, which we know is largely untrue. Uh, so so there's, there's that work to be done as well to help people understand that this is happening, that there are a multitude of reasons why this is happening, that it can happen safely and effectively, particularly if people have access to uh, reliable information and accurate medications, and that no one should be threatened with arrest and jail for doing what they need to do to end their own pregnancies. Right. And part of the reason that they would want to have an abortion at home is because the governments are making it so difficult to be able to access a clinic. So on the one hand, if they say that, well, we're criminalizing it to prevent it because it's so unsafe and everyone should go to a clinic, but then <laughs> they can't go to a clinic because either a clinic is 200 miles away, it's prohibitively expensive, or as in the case of Indiana and other states, they simply don't allow abortion uh, at all. So it's a completely shocking you know, roundabout argument that they're using. But even if ab abortion clinics were available and not prohibitively expensive, women give birth at home. If a woman wants to conduct an abortion at home and it's her constitutional right and it's her right to privacy. I'm, even in the first case, it was uh, argued that it was the woman's 
right to privacy as well in her decisions. So if she doesn't want to go to a clinic and have a stranger prod her, etc., and would like to complete a very safe process at home, that, you know, if she's allowed to give birth at home, I believe that we have to have a discussion where women's reproductive rights in all areas should be looked at with more respect and dignity for different opinions as to how a woman wants to treat her body. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, in, in talking with doulas and midwives and others who you know, are, are communicating directly with women who would prefer to have abortions outside of a clinical setting or others who can't reach a clinic because they don't have the money to, to get there or they can't access a clinic because they're a minor and they can't um, um, get a judicial bypass in, in their particular state, or they are um, someone who doesn't identify as a woman and doesn't feel like a woman's clinic is the right place to have a, a medical procedure, or they are live in a small town and they, they don't necessarily want everybody to know that they're having an abortion and all of the protesters outside the clinic make clinic access uncomfortable for them for whatever reason. There is no single reason why people might not want to have an abortion in a, in a clinic. Um, you know, there, there are hundreds of lived experiences that may push someone away from the formal healthcare system, including um, abortion clinics, or that may pull them towards self-directed care. Um, so you've mentioned, you know, some of them, uh, egregious excessive legal restrictions on on abortion providers that have decimated reproductive health services, you know, in states that have only one clinic left. Um, Obviously, that's going to limit clinical abortion care. You know, biased counseling, parental consent, mandatory ultrasounds can extract heavy tolls from people. And and it can be a jarring process for some. For some, the abortion process is a very positive and uplifting one. Um, But for some, it's it's, for whatever reason, it might not be, um, a, you know, the happiest of procedures. Um, so that while there are many amazing clinics around the country providing top-notch health care to pregnant people, um, accessing these clinics can be, um, you know, weaving through protesters, um, potential public exposure that we mentioned. It might prompt some people to prefer clinic-based abortion care, but they might end their pregnancy at home because of, for that very reason. Um, you know, Jill mentioned earlier the low income, uh, the the cost, the true cost of, um, of affording an abortion might make literally accessing an uh, abortion clinic an insurmountable financial obstacle. Um, so, you know, that may push people away from uh, the formal health care system, but I, we don't want to disempower the women who prefer. Um, to take control of their own health care. Um, and so we, we want to really respect whatever people's lived experiences are that might make um, the formal health care system not the exact right place to have an abortion. And so we like to lift up the voices of the people for whom the U.S. health care system has been not the best place. Um, the U.S. healthcare system does have a long history of abuses targeting people of color or immigrants or indigenous people. And so, you know, that that just that may lead to distrust of, of abortion clinics for some people. And so, you know, should you be criminalized for having an abortion outside of a clinic because you distrust the, the doc the only doctor in town that can provide an abortion? That just doesn't seem like the right answer somehow. Um, and and also, you know, wanting to also for, for people that you mentioned, people who have births at home may also prefer to have abortions at home with 
the comfort of a friend, a loved one, um, or in some other safe place that might feel like the right place. And so for whatever reason a person ends a pregnancy outside the formal healthcare system, they should never, ever face arrest or jail for doing so. Um, but that really isn't the reality for people. The anti-abortion movement, while they claim and give face value to the idea that, you know, compassion for women should really drive anti-abortion laws, we know that absolutely is not the case. Some of the laws that we mentioned earlier, some statements by public officials about criminalizing abortion, it just, there, there's a lot of talk about giving to compassion for, um, for women among the anti-abortion movement, but the, the reality is there is very little compassion and there's in fact a lot of desire to punish people um, and, and it's already happening. We are so keenly aware of all the reasons, all the push and pull factors that might um, motivate someone to to end their own pregnancy. Um, we also know that for many, a clinic or a hospital setting will be the best, most comfortable place for them to have an abortion or to receive any sort of reproductive health care. And so we are working toward a future where all pregnant people have access to the full panoply so, so that they can choose of their own volition whether they want provider-directed care or self-directed care. And there are so many terrific clinics that are providing such culturally appropriate, sensitive, uplifting, even empowering reproductive health care, including Whole Woman's Health, the, you know, the lead uh, plaintiff in, in the case before the court. Right, so apart from traps, we also have the problem with uh, picketing and violence uh, associated with clinics that might uh, impel women to have abortions at home, where, even if they would prefer to go to a clinic. And unfortunately, the National Abortion Federation, which is the National Association of Abortion Providers, just released a report on the violent incidents in 2015, which has dramatically increased from 2014. There were, in 2015, there were three murders, four acts of arson, 21,715 reports of picketing outside of abortion clinics, uh, up from 5,542 in 2014, and that's just the reported incidents. And in just barely a six-week period, there's 25,000 incidents of hate speech directed against women wanting to have an abortion and abortion providers. Now, unfortunately, in 2014, a 9-0 decision the Supreme Court in McCullen versus Coakley struck down a Massachusetts law requiring a 35-foot buffer zone around abortion clinics as being insufficiently narrow for its purpose. Now, Massachusetts has a history of extreme violent attacks against women and uh, abortion providers, including bombings and attempted murders, which is why they, they uh, enacted the law in the first place. Now, with respect to the fact that women that would like to go to a clinic uh, are already probably feeling vulnerable in the first place, and considering that we do have First Amendment rights and should respect you know, people's opinion and their right to express, how do we find a modicum of you know, consensus between the two rights so that women are not <laughs> able to be threatened, assaulted, uh, or their dignity not respected when they're at such a vulnerable time to enter a clinic. Yeah, I, I was in, I so appreciate your framing of, of that case. Um, it's when you, if you were to read 
the transcript and the and you know the the briefs and the opinion in McClellan versus Coakley, you would have no idea of the actual acts of violence and hate speech mm-hmm. that are occurring on a near daily basis to patients and and workers at these clinics. It instead paints this picture, you know, of this lovely, soft-spoken, well-meaning, heartfelt, compassion-filled grandmother who is just following her internal, you know, ethical gyroscope that leads her (laughs) through these sidewalks to respectfully, calmly, and lovingly try to counsel, quote-unquote, counsel women into reconsidering their abortion decisions. And we all know anybody who has ever been a clinic escort, who has ever been a patient at these clinics, who's ever worked at these clinics or even driven by, knows that she is not the norm. She is not the reason, you know, we need these protections. So uh, I'm, I, we know that there has been violence. We know that there have been murders. There have been attempted murders. There have been bombs. There have been, there has been arson. Um, and then, and then, yeah, the, the unrelenting hate speech. So <laughs> I think first and foremost, if we are going to truly try to strike a fair balance between these, you know, conflicting interests and, and sets of right, rights, we need to be realistic and honest about what it is, what is happening and who we're talking about and how they are operating. Um, in the real world and not in this fictitious world of McCullen versus Coakley. Um, I'll, I'll pause there to see if Melissa wants to, to jump in and add any thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think the, what is somewhat empowering about thinking about the idea of ending a pregnancy at home for us is for all those reasons, that you, you avoid that kind of, you know, sort of violent speech against the, the actual person, but also you know, when you talk to the people in the public, they generally support the idea that a woman should be allowed to end her own pregnancy. And that 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 decision seems like a really important right that the public at large holds. And so when we just focus on the women who end their own pregnancies and just think about that experience and that particular woman, it allows us to really um, change the conversation and to really focus on the pregnant person's experience. And so, you know, what we what we hope will happen over the next 20 years is to really shift the conversation around abortion to the pregnant person and and their experiences with abortion, and to to again give them the full you know umbrella of options of how they want to experience an abortion. And so, part of the reason why you know we really want to focus on this work right now and and over the next you know, several decades of really changing this conversation is that we want to hold that, lift up that pregnant person and hold them at the center of this conversation. Um, And, you know, just making sure that at all times we're thinking about what kind of abortion experience is, is best for them and what, how can we provide, you know, how can we make sure that the law supports them in whatever kind of abortion experience they want. And obviously they don't want hate speech and, and, so, you know, we need to attack the problem from a lot of different angles. Um, and I think that's, you know, part and parcel to a bigger effort that's underway to destigmatize abortion in this country. It's amazing for as much time and attention, as many of the airways as this takes up, abortion is so misunderstood. 
Um, when I'm in, you know, conversations day to day with people who don't necessarily work in the reproductive rights and justice movement, I'm consistently surprised by how shocked they are to discover that there are over a million abortions performed every year in the U.S., that one in three women in the U.S. will have an abortion in the course of her reproductive life. This is not a fringe issue. This has not just happened to those people. It cuts across all socioeconomic you know, strata. It, it, it's, it's everyone. We all know someone or are someone who has had an abortion, even but we just don't know that they have, um, you know, because so many have been able to do so uh, privately and comfortably, as they should. But people who have abortions have become absolutely vilified. And so, you know, we, we need to, you know, work with organizations like Sea Change and Advocates for Youth, which has its one in three campaign, that are really encouraging people to tell the stories of their abortion experiences and, um, and to try to make them come to life in a way and, 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 and draw the stigma out. Um, and of those 45 briefs submitted in the Whole Woman's Health case on behalf of the clinics, um, there were several that were dedicated to uh, people telling their abortion stories, including one in which 113 women lawyers told their stories about having had abortions and how by being able to access that care when they needed to, they are able to have pursued careers uh, in, in the legal field today. Right. I think one of the reasons there are so many restrictions on women's reproductive health, including for instance, restrictions on contraception, which obviously would lead to more abortions and then restrictions on abortion is very discriminatory against women. It, historically, it's been to subject women to their appropriate positioning as mothers and carers. You know, having a child, particularly, for instance, if you're a high school student, would severely lessen your chances of being able to continue with your education, uh, particularly with tertiary degrees and graduate degrees. So it's really a, a fundamental question of women's rights to be able to control their own reproductive abilities, to control whether they have a kid and to control the spacing of their children. We are being vilified. All women are vilified if one woman is vilified. You know, I, I'm horrified that you could have a potential a presidential nominee say that, you know, even if a woman is is raped or uh, there's incest involved, there should definitely never be an, an abortion. I mean, I, I can't believe that they would be able to say that on, on television. It's just, uh, it's baffling to me. Now, obviously, I'm a foreigner, so... Um, it, 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 it could be because I have, um, you know, a different standpoint. Is this a question of fundamental women's rights? Are we in agreement? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Alexander, it is not you. You are not the only one who is horrified by that. It, it's incredible to me that in 2016 that is possible, and not just one candidate but multiple candidates, and there were even candidates going so far as to say, no, we do not need a life exception. If a fully... <laughs> alive, living, breathing person who is imbued with rights and privileges might die, you know, in, and there is a, a zygote or embryo, you know, within them, we should prioritize that zygote or embryo's potential, potential for life over the life of that real human. I mean, 
the degree of the, of the devaluation and vilification of women is shocking. And we should all be equally awestruck. But yes, is this a, is this a matter of, of fundamental rights? You better believe it is. And I, as you were speaking, Alexander, it reminded me of, um, of a book that was uh, authored by the founding faculty director of the Center on Reproductive Rights and Justice, Kristen Luker. It's called Abortion and the Politics of Motherhood. It was published in 1984, but it's still completely relevant um, and accurate today. For the book, she interviewed something close to a thousand self-proclaimed pro-life and pro-choice activists, trying to get past the rhetoric on both sides and get down to the, to the deep root causes of their passions. And what she discovered, which probably won't come as a surprise to you, is that it actually isn't about the embryo, zygote, fetus, baby. It is about the woman. And it is about gender roles and gender scripts and, and what women ought to be doing in the roles they ought to be playing in families, in couples, in society, you know, writ large. Um, and so I think it's really a desire for regression, a desire to oppress uh, women and bring us back in time 50 years to, uh, to a time when women couldn't control their reproductive capacity and therefore their destinies and didn't and have the, options, um, most women, that is, didn't have options available to them um, that would allow them to have, you know, healthy uh, sexual lives and pursue, you know, many of their goals for education and employment and, and other things. It's a fear of women being able to control their uh, sexuality and, and their reproduction major issues as well. So when we're talking about self-induced abortion and uh, the ability to, you know, c control people's decisions are parental consent laws. So 13 states have parental notification laws, five require birth consent and notification, with six additional states, including our state of California, having such laws on the book currently enjoined, but still having the laws on the books. Now, the only way a minor in these states can avoid parental involvement and uh, if the minor is at such a vulnerable stage in their lives, I believe that uh, if they don't want to talk to their parents, possibly their parents would be against the idea of an abortion, but um, they would need to go to court and obtain a judicial bypass. Now, how do these restrictions affect minors' constitutionally protected rights? Because women under the age of 18 are also entitled to uh, the constitutional right of abortion. Good question. So, yeah, 38 states require some type of parental involvement in a minor's decision to have an abortion. Um, and 13, like you mentioned, require that one or both parents be notified. Here in California, we have faced and narrowly defeated now three um, ballot initiatives that have tried to impose a parental notification requirement here. Yes, the, the, the entire logic is flawed. Um, because we know that the majority of minors do involve a parent or a trusted family, a, a adult in the family, in their abortion decision-making. The majority do. And 
you know, whether you have a parental notification requirement or not, it doesn't prohibit minors from talking to their parents about their pregnancy and their, their related decisions. Um, but we also know that those who don't tell their parents have really good reasons not to. You know, they, they might be um, survivors of domestic abuse. It might be a parent or a parent's significant other or some other relative who got them pregnant. They might um, be, they know, they might know that given their parents' views, this would get them kicked out of the house or, or, or they might suffer all sorts of other negative consequences. So um, you, you, you can't mandate good family uh, communication. And you really, we really shouldn't have politicians dictating what people do in their families, particularly for these teens who are protecting themselves. You mentioned the judicial bypass process, and it is equally flawed because it forces a minor to navigate the court system and filings, which for two, you know, licensed law school graduates, you know, we find challenging enough. And I cannot imagine being a 16-year-old trying to do that, but some do, and they manage to make it into that courtroom, and they stand there in that courtroom staring up at a judge dressed in black. And typically they have no counsel because they don't have resources to get counsel. But in some states, a counsel will be provided or a guardian ad litem for the fetus who is arguing against the minor. And the entire interrogation is, um, is geared toward the judge making a determination of whether that minor is mature enough to make a decision about whether to have an abortion, which begs the question, if the answer is negative, if she's not mature enough to decide to have an abortion, that means she's mature enough to become a mother? <laughs> exactly. It makes no sense. No. And so it's, it's really misguided. It's really backwards. It completely undermines the agency of, uh, of young people. Um, knowing themselves, their bodies, their life courses, and what is right for them. Uh, and, but, but we can see why they've been so popular because similar to trap laws, they're really insidious in the damage that they do. On the surface, to your average person who's not steeped in this work, kinda, it seems kind of reasonable. Well, yeah, I think kids should talk to their parents if they're going to have an abortion. That's a big deal. It means they've had sex, and they should be talking to their parents about that too. It's, you know, and... It's just that the abortion opponents have been really brilliant, crafty, creative, clever in, in drafting, pushing and enacting laws that on the surface seem so innocuous and in practice are so damaging um, because at the end of the day, the crux of all of them is to make abortion impossible um, to to obtain. Right. I mean, I believe if a minor had to go to court, as you said, it's, it's actually technically complicated, but the vulnerability of the minor to go to court and not only face a, a judge, but the members of the public, members of the public who might be their neighbours, for instance. Exactly. And the other thing about, you know, that we have to think about is the whole... Um, you know, reproductive experience of a young person, um, you know, a, a 
what kind of sex education training they're getting on the front end and what kind of support they're getting as a young parent on the back end. And, you know, we're really just not supporting our young people in, in, in a really meaningful way in, in their reproductive experiences. And so I think we can't look at abortion in isolation because, you know, it's part of, uh, you know, a whole experience. And, you know, we, we you know, on the back end, if the, the person is not able to obtain an abortion and ends up having the child in order to receive public benefits, they might be forced to live with, you know, the very adult who abused them. And so, you know, we're really not supporting young parents in meaningful ways um, or helping them to get the kind of training they need not to become young parents. Right. And a lot and, of these states that have these parental uh, restrictions do not have the same parental restrictions when, with respect to adopting. So the minor can adopt out the child without uh, any oh, parental yeah. involvement, but cannot have the decision whether to have the child in the first place without parental involvement, which is mind-boggling to me. Agreed. Well, and also in, in, in thinking that abortion is, I believe, 14 times safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. Mm -hmm. um, regard to maternal mortality and morbidity rates. Abortion has been painted as this unsafe procedure when in fact it is the most common and mm -hmm. safest surgical procedure for women in this country. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting that, that a minor is not required you know, to, to have a conversation about something that's 14 potentially 14 times more dangerous for her than an abortion. It just goes back to this abortion exceptionalism. There's mm -hmm. so much that would be un thinkable um, in other sorts of law, policy, and regulation, but we have, you know, in, in our process of vilifying abortion and the people who provide them and the people who get them, we've, we've come to culturally accept, and it's so strange when you pull back to the 30,000-foot view or you bring, you know, a perspective from another country like you, like you do, Alexander, and you go, this doesn't, it's illogical at best. And it, and it just, again, it pulls back that very thin veil over the guys that this isn't about protection. This is about punishment. Mm -hmm. this, so many of these laws just punish women for their sexuality and for their agency, whether they're minors um, who, I mean, what, uh, and, and, it, and it cuts both ways. It cuts um, if, if they have an abortion, it cuts if they have a kid. So another example of this are welfare family caps that are still on the books in 16 states, including California. Uh, you know, purportedly everyone is so concerned about these unborn children as uh, soon as, you know, they are born, they apparently don't give a damn about them anymore. So <laughs> I right. Yes. And this is proof positive of that. that we really aren't pro-life or they these abortion opponents aren't aren't really pro-life and and it goes back to this you know these this litany of punitive regulations for women's sexuality so welfare fam family caps which are also sometimes called child exclusion policies are basically a form of population control that discourages childbearing by denying uh cash aid to families already receiving cash grants for basic needs, so welfare recipients. These policies are rooted in racist, classist, and sexist beliefs that women who receive public benefits are irresponsible producers, reproducers, bad mothers, and drains on society. They stem from a very common stereotype-driven theory that 
cash aid encourages poor women to have more kids outside of marriage. So as the theory goes, by cutting off the aid, states can deter unmarried women from having more children or force them to marry. And by doing that, they think they will be lowering poverty or welfare dependence. Um, so at the end of the day, welfare family caps aim to alter the sexual, marital, and reproductive behaviors of welfare recipients. Not surprisingly, um, research conducted you know, within the state of California and across the states proves that denying cash aid to newborns does not, in fact, alter their parents' sexual or reproductive behavior. The multitude of studies have found no clear relationship between family caps and a reduction in birth rates. Um, and the only time, in fact, the, the research has demonstrated a connection between welfare family caps and birth rates is in states where Medicaid funds, state Medicaid funds, are available to cover abortion. And, you know, beyond being ineffectual in terms of, you know, modifying reproductive behavior, um, they've pushed many mostly poor young single mothers and their kids into dire poverty. So by denying aid to newborns, um, these states uh, make some of the poorest families even poorer and worsen all the effects of poverty, including housing and food insecurity. One study found that family caps increase the poverty rate of children by over 13%. Um, and then, you know, other research demonstrates that children living in poverty experience more mental, cognitive, emotional, and physical health challenges. So it just goes back to the point. It's like if you dared to be a woman, particularly a woman without resources, and to have sex, well, then you better be ready to face the consequences of your actions. You will pay for this one way or another. Right, because the government will not uh, provide funds for an abortion and then the government will not provide funds for the child. So it pretty much backs the woman into a corner. And then if you d decide to get, you know, to be a, a in, in, uh, ingenuous person that you might, you know, search the internet and try to find a way to end the pregnancy on your own. And, um, you know, you might in fact get arrested for doing so, you know, that you sort of are in a catch, catch, catch situation. Absolutely. It's, it's extremely tragic and it not only affects the women, but if the woman has children, it severely affects her children too. Not, not only because they all end up worse off, you know, economically and socially, but if their mother's in jail, they end up losing their mother. So Exactly. I was going to say that exactly. It's, they're, they're damned on the sex education front, mm -hmm. so they might not, you know, be privy to the basic concepts about how to protect themselves and how to determine, you know, their lives and how to enjoy themselves and have pleasure sexually. Then there are huge impediments to getting affordable contraception and contraception that is of their choice. Then if they become pregnant, yeah, exactly. They may, you know, a lack of access and support for and enormous stigmatization for the choice to have an abortion, whether they do it through a clinic or, or do it on their own, the chance of being, uh, you know, locked up if they do do it on their own. And, um, and, then, and then, again, like whether they are, you know, whether you are a poor, you know, young mom who has attempted a self-induced abortion and ended up in jail and lost your parental rights, or you decide to have a kid and you're really struggling to make ends meet and, you know, you, you might be forced to participate in some street economies in order to take care of your family. And then again, you, you land in jail and or lose your parental rights. It's extremely tragic. And we need more people working against these 
malicious policies against women. And so I thank both of you for your work for all women in this country. Thank you, and we thank you for yours. And I thank you also for your time today on Gravity. You've had very insightful answers to very pertinent issues. I hope that soon all women will be able to effectuate their reproductive choices, whether it be with respect to contraception, obtaining an abortion, and whether at a clinic or in the privacy of their own home, or having another child without being vilified, without being criminalised, and receiving government assistance when needed. I trust that while the current climate looks dire with respect to women's rights, that we will as a society respect women's choices and provide all women with the capacity to effectuate their reproductive choices. Choices which should be viewed as rights and which should be constitutionally protected. That was the end of our podcast with Jill Adams and Melissa Mikesell from the Centre on Reproductive Rights and Justice. You can find out more about the Centre's work and upcoming events, as well as sign up for their newsletter at law.berkeley.edu forward slash research forward slash centre hyphen on hyphen reproductive hyphen rights hyphen and hyphen justice. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.